0: everyone welcome to status sustainability where we deliver key insights and kind of unbundle unwrap sustainability issues i am standing in today as a friend for seth
1: sitting in sitting in i needed a friend we sort of wanted to um anyone who's been following our our staff our content for a while knows that we do a lot of experimentation sometimes they may look like technical glitches but they're actually experimentation and so as part of that we're also playing around with different formats Izzy has been cameoing in on different sorts of things that we're doing and I think that's worked really well and so excited to have Izzy Izzy in these episodes with us as well, yeah. with me.
0: Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. So stay, stay tuned. And
1: DM us to tell us which one it was yeah. in this occasion.
0: Exactly. Um, so today we're going to talk about how to build a sustainability team. We're going to focus on roles, vision, how to budget for a team, how to resource a team, um and so yeah to get started let's
1: do it yes
0: what is like the vision and how do you kind of first go about making a sustainability team
1: yeah i actually think there's almost even just a bit of context before we go into that which is what type of person are we speaking from the perspective of Mm -hmm. um and so i think of a head of sustainability let's say uh, and and that person is the first person in, in that team, in that function, in that role. And they're now trying to design what other bits and pieces they need around them. And I think that the first piece is what type of organization are they in? And so uh, our experience and the types of companies that I've worked with range from, let's say smaller companies, maybe doing a, a hundred, two hundred million $200 million revenue up to the very large, doing tens of billions of dollars of revenue and it's very different patterns for what you would need within the team in that context. And so I think of, let's say uh, two varieties and it'll play differently for which of those two varieties you sit in. One is where you're ahead of sustainability in a, more, in a company that's earlier in its innovation journey and is still at the point where they're actually just doing rapid experimentation on their core product. And you need then a different type of person in that role, but also that person will need a slightly different type of team doing slightly different sorts of things versus a more mature organization with established products, established fit in their market. Think of a, an established CPG or FMCG or consumer goods company. And there again, it's a slightly different profile of skills that you'll need as well. And so that's just a little bit of, of context, but then to go to your question, Izzy, around where do you start? I think the first piece is just, uh, if you're in the former, where you're in a, let's say a company that's earlier in its innovation journey, I think you need to start looking for a team that can actually ideate, move quickly, be really good at execution, and be people who are just really good at getting stuff done. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't necessarily need to be the case that they have lots of deep expertise or experience, they'll learn fast. And so actually you have a lot of leeway to bring in people who are relatively early in their careers, relatively new, and, and they can just get going and actually ramp up. And so a number of the companies that we see that are, let's say, Series B, Series C, Series D startups doing maybe $300, 500000000 million of revenue fit into that camp where they've taken people who are earlier in their career journeys but just really good at getting stuff done. Mm-hmm. They've moved them into these roles, and that's perfectly fine. And now those people in those sustainability teams are actually great recruits for more established organizations. In the second type of company, which is, let's say, a more established entity, more mature in its product, more mature in its market, it's a little different because there you need people who are going to be really good at navigating the internal uh, politics, let's say the internal bureaucracy and really good at speaking the language. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a team that I know where there is a head of sustainability reporting into an operational leader. And in that case, one of the things that the operational leader really appreciates is that the head of sustainability knows how to get things done in the context of their organization, because that person has been there for 15 years and just knows how to navigate all the routes. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very uniquely different sort of thing. Uh, Again, you need good performance management or process management or PMO sort of skills, but also just the ability to navigate is more important the ability to command respect and credibility from the rest of the organization is more important. So you're often looking for more expertise and more depth and more kind of industry credibility from having done similar roles in other organizations. But that's kind of a little of what I would start with maybe.
0: And I guess off the back of that, of those two different types of different organizations, when you're at the start of this journey and you have the luxury of seeing maybe how you're going to set up the sustainability organi- like department will it be a one vertical function or will it be set up within different functions so within r d within the finance team how does that work across both types of, it, of companies
1: yeah actually that's that's a really interesting question and i'm just um thinking of how best to answer this there, there it almost doesn't that piece really doesn't depend so much on the size of the organization Uh, Because what I see is that you have these two models, one is centralized and the other is distributed. So in the centralized model, you have a sustainability function and it's a vertical function kind of supporting the, the other functions of the business. And in the other model, you might have sustainability playing a coordination role, but there are sustainability people embedded in other parts of the business, other business functions. And I think actually both of those models can exist in smaller organizations and also in larger organizations. It does, however, shape what type of team you'll be looking for because it will shape, for instance, whether you need to bring those functional, if you're in the, let's say the centralized version, you need to bring those other functional expertise areas into your function Mm -hmm. because you need to understand them and be able to communicate really well with them. So for instance, If you are not going to be embedded in procurement, if sustainability doesn't have a person embedded in procurement and instead has someone on the sustainability function column, you need someone who understands procurement best practice, someone who understands how to navigate supply chain conversations, someone who can run those sorts of workshops and take what is traditionally a zero-sum adversarial kind of relationship often between suppliers and customers and actually turn that into a collaborative discussion. Mm whereas if you're distributed and you're embedded, then what you can do is you can actually find someone who is in the procurement or supply chain team and actually does have that expertise already and upskill them onto the sustainability side. And so I think that initial sort of design choice does affect what you're looking for in the team.
0: And upskill how?
1: Let me maybe actually take a step back and just for a moment reflect on what it takes to drive sustainability change in an organization and then come back to that question. So uh, I think at some point at McKinsey, I I sort of saw saw this framework called, I think it was the influence model. And it, it basically has a few different aspects to it. And this holds true generally in a generic way for all types of change that you're trying to achieve in organizational setups. And so the first element is usually something around role modeling. So you need to kind of have, leadership and management and people in positions of authority very visibly role model what, what the change is that they want you to deliver. And, and I can give some examples of that as well. The second is you want to have the, let's say, um, incentives aligned with what change you're trying to achieve as well. So is there, as let's say, is an impact element embedded into the KPIs of the team, of the organization? Are there ESG aligned bonuses? whatever you want to think about in that incentives uh, space. Uh, There's a third, which is, do you have tools and processes to really help enable and support this? Mm -hmm. And that's also going to be an important piece here. Think about software. It could even be consultants. It could be uh, just ways of working and interfaces as well between different types of teams. And the fourth piece, just to come back to the question, is some form of coaching or upskilling in the direction of the change that you want to achieve? And there are a few examples of organizations doing this really well, actually. Um, I think I, I think it was Chanel. I came across an example. I, I don't know if you, I think you might have as well, where actually they've been uh, putting large uh, sections of the team through different sorts of training programs on sustainability to really help upskill and and coach and apprentice. Uh, i was speaking with the the ceo of the uk business for a large food food service business a food retailer like a restaurant chain uh just a couple of days ago and he actually went through this cambridge sustainability course as well for sustainability leaders uh, and coincidentally was alongside one of our product managers in that course and that's just amazing right you're taking someone who's clearly a senior leader in their business and is on track for more seniority and they're not in a sustainability role. They're a they're a CEO of a of a big important region, uh, and they're going to go. They're doing this course to upskill on sustainability and make it relevant for their day job. That I think yeah. is actually best practice, uh, and that's just one example, right? But that's how I would look at upskilling
0: and meeting peers along the way.
1: And meeting peers along the way, right? I mean, if you kind of take the cohorts that you have in these programs, and I think the Cambridge program is is a really good one and very well respected now. Uh, terra.do also has mm-hmm. has a great program, and we have friends there as well. And I think what they do very nicely is they bring together cohorts of people from very different disciplines. So, again, to go to the example of our product manager, you know, Greg, uh, sort of shoulder to shoulder with people from industry, people from software. Uh, it's It's a really nice combination, I think, and it means that you're able to have this osmosis of different ways of thinking, united by the subject matter of context of sustainability
0: yeah i would love to just touch on budgets as well and we had a uh, event the other day and a lot of people were asking about you know i really want to increase my team but i don't know how to actually make the internal business case for this or get the budget to get behind it would you have any recommendations on how to go about that
1: yeah I think again, maybe just to set the overall scene, budgets are really difficult for every business right now and for every function within every business. Within sustainability, in some ways it's um, in some ways it's better and in some ways it's worse than it was last year. It's worse because general state of the economy and you know budgeting processes catching up with that. It's also in some ways a little better because organizations have struggled with their sustainability teams being under-budgeted last year. Mm. And a lot of organizations are now changing that and revisiting that. So we're seeing a lot of budgets now being expanded for sustainability purely because they were so constrained last year. Also, a lot of commitments made last year, you now need to start moving into delivery mode. Everyone is aware that for a 2030 target, you have basically five operational years actually now if you start accounting for the time it takes to get things done and the time it takes to actually brag about what you did get done. Uh, And so given that context, I think there's a lot of movement back and forth on, on budgets in this space. But in terms of how I would think about budgets for the sustainability team, I would apply two learnings that I've absorbed. One is I would actually start small and put gas on the stuff that works. And so I think that some sustainability teams try and build out a big setup from scratch. And so they define early all the roles that they might need. And then they put up a big uh, set of, of JDs or open roles online, and they start actually recruiting for all these roles. And they're basically trying to build really too fast for them to be able to have room to experiment. Because if you have this big team, everything actually now needs to work really smoothly both because those teams are looking for achievement to give them validation that they're doing the right thing. And a lot of sustainability professionals are motivated about doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. And secondly, because now that you have that budget and you're spending it, you're gonna get a lot of scrutiny on how you're spending it. So I think that the idea of bringing in, let's say one or two people to cover a range of bases uh, I think that's that's a better way to start, and then you can even very quickly start ramping up. One of the examples I like is um, a head of sustainability at Calzedonia. Uh, you know, is he, taking a really thoughtful approach to building out his team, where he started with a few people covering multiple bases and they're sort of owning problem areas, and now he's defining problems to be solved and categories of problems to be solved, and then thinking about how he should architect a team around those problems to be solved. And I think that allows him to be quite flexible and to gradually expand while developing a better understanding of how those problems are gonna be solved, which may change role number seven uh, versus what you would have had if you'd gone out with all of them together. So that's maybe, sorry, one, one aspect. The other aspect, and this is, the second one is a general rule that I often talk about which is, I think everything should have a proper business case, and every business case should have a return on investment. And so, and we practice this in our business as, as you know as well, which is literally for everything we do, everything we budget for, we want to see what is the actual return. And the 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 business payback could be five months, it could be two years, it could be three years, and we can debate that. And there may be a lot of reasons to do stuff that has a very long payback period but you should still, there's no excuse for not having those numbers done.
0: Yeah. And so maybe just drawing a bit on the Chalcedonia piece, but I'd love to know kind of what roles generally we should be prioritizing. Is it generalist roles? Are they data roles? Like, what does it look like?
1: Yeah, I think that there are a few bundles. Okay. And actually, I think it's worth talking about each bundle a bit. So uh, one bundle is data and analytics. And I think that that works really nicely together rather than compartmentalized too much. Mm -hmm. I think what you want is you want to have a unified person and maybe in large organizations, a unified team that is thinking about the types of data outputs that you need and that's the analytics side. Like what do you need to be able to get to interesting answers for the questions you need to ask? and then what does that mean you need in terms of data inputs mm-hmm. and they can kind of design that system we had a great question come in on a comment on some post recently which is uh, you know is isn't data architecture something that data engineers should be thinking of rather than people in the business trying to lead sustainability and actually you know the lines are quite blurry now the data architecture of this is basically just what do you need as outputs what do you need as inputs and how should those things link up conceptually? And you don't need to be a data engineer really to form a high level impression of that. So this sort of data and analytics piece I think works nicely together. I actually think uh, Mars, the, the food business, and you know, it's, it's, it's known for the Mars bar, but the pet food division is probably bigger than Convectionary right now. I think they have a really good approach to this where they have data and analytics roles and a, like a global data and analytics lead Uh, and a team that really thinks very thoughtfully about that. And I think that team is a big part of why they're able to put forward, again, very very deep and thoughtful insights and and narrative on that, both in terms of what they've achieved and what they have tried to and struggled to achieve. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's sort of one bundle. I think there's a second bundle, which is around this uh, ESG reporting and external stakeholder piece, anyone who's followed my stuff knows I don't like the term ESG, but at the same time, uh, from an output perspective or a reporting perspective, there is genuinely a role for ESG. From a business change perspective and an operational change perspective, I think ESG needs to be unbundled into the different pieces and managed separately, but like it or leave it from a reporting perspective and a a stakeholder and a regulatory perspective, they're still bundled. And so having someone who can manage the ESG reporting and stakeholder management side Mm -hmm. is is another bundle to have. And uh, a team that I think does this really well is Diageo, uh, the Beverages business. Diageo has actually a long history of generating, again, very robust, very comprehensive ESG reports at a time when not everyone was doing that and they were really forward leaning. And their team is very experienced on this as well. And there you want people who have the right combination of being able to tell a story and a narrative and go quite big picture in that while being supported by the right facts and at the same time matching it against the lens of frameworks and regulations uh, and so on. And so I think that bundle of ESG written and reporting is another important one. Uh, I think there's a third bundle, which is around operational change and navigating and coordinating and aligning operational change across the business. And that's that's also that, 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 I think for that that you need some you need someone or a team that is really good at kind of aligning R and D uh, and 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 manufacturing and engineering and innovation and making all this work quite smoothly. I'm really interested to follow how Nestle approaches that, just as an example. Sustainability and particularly environmental sustainability is very heavily an operational topic at Nestle. Uh, There's there's obviously also a supply chain piece, but the operational team is one of the ones really in the lead. And I think there they've then thought very carefully about how do they really dovetail objectives and outputs and aims with manufacturing and redesign and 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 again, rejigging really how they do business. Uh, There's a fourth piece, I think, which is around uh, this sort of supply chain, uh, supply chain engagement, let's say that's becoming bigger and bigger. And most companies now have dedicated sustainability people on that side of the topic. And so that's another problem bundle to solve for. And you could say it's about, it's about data gathering, but it's increasingly about collaboration and it will become about deploying solutions as well. Like, you know, again, climate risk insurance and Nestle, we were just talking about it just a minute ago, Nestle is now piloting that, for instance, in different parts of the world. That solution, you know, bringing those solutions into the supply chain, that's part of this problem bundle, which I'm seeing as the supply chain piece. Uh, and there... I think what you want is people who can lead and facilitate collaborative dialogues in areas which have traditionally been dominated by zero-sum games, Mm -hmm. where, again, traditionally, customers try to extract every last bit of value from suppliers, and suppliers likewise try to take all the money that's on the table. Mm -hmm. And obviously, that's not true for every business, and that is changing. And you need people on the customer side, if I'm speaking from that perspective, who can navigate those challenges and those sensitivities and do it in a way where they're also able to coach and upskill and introduce new knowledge and new capabilities into their suppliers who will often be less advanced or less mature on this journey than they are. Good example of this is Unilever. Uh, Unilever, does, does some things really well in this space, I think, and the way in which their supply chain teams are engaging with their suppliers. I think it, it's, it's a slow moving beast, but it's a very constructive, very informed way that balances sort of the ideological end state perspective with the practicalities of what needs to happen. So That's an example I like. Uh, and then finally, sorry, just running through a lot of big bundles, but finally, I think the, the other bundle is just around good project management, skills, which are always going to be needed. And maybe that's to manage all of these other bundles or in its own right, uh, because this is a change program. And a company that I think is doing that really well is is Kraft Heinz, where in terms of just managing to execute from the starting point to where they want to be going, I think they're they're managing to close that gap relatively quickly mm-hmm. through a good Project management-oriented approach with timelines and 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 an end destination and involving all the right people at the right times, and I think that's the skill set that is always going to be useful as well.
0: Mm. And I guess again touching on this resourcing point, like do you have any rules of thumb from when you know with some of the operations bundles or the supply chain bundles, I bet there'll be overlaps with the R and D team or. So is there any rules of thumb on when maybe you internally resource, when you like externally resource and also when you automate versus like manpower?
1: In- yeah, yeah, good, good question. Um, I, th- a few thoughts on this. One is not everything needs to be done. Not every job actually needs to be done. And the best way to reduce the scope of the team you need is to remove jobs to be done. Mm-hmm. So just the first thing is not every job needs to be done. The second is not every job that needs to be done needs to be done by a human. And so the next piece is just to think about how you automate whatever it is that needs to be done. And is there room to do this? In previous episodes, we've talked about scraping PDFs as an example. Mm-hmm. Every Almost every company that I'm speaking with these days that is trying to get, let's say, energy data into a system, is doing it manually. They're typing in stuff into spreadsheets and actually tools to scrape PDFs and particularly tabular PDFs that are quite often the same, those have existed for for quite a while. So uh, I think that the ability to just remove a lot of that and automate a lot of those jobs is the second filter I would take. The third is uh, if it's a job that needs to be done and it has to be done by a human, it doesn't necessarily have to be done by a human that you hire. Mm -hmm. It can often be outsourced, and that may mean that you have the flexibility for this not to be a full-time person, and it can be a ramp up, ramp down sort of resource. And then finally, if it has to be done, it has to be done by a human, it has to be done by a human working for the company in the company, I would always first look to whether you can upskill someone who's already there Mm -hmm. and wants to move into this space. I think there are a lot of instances where people in the company want to work on sustainability. That can go well, and that can go badly. Uh, so I, you know, I was speaking with a leader in a in a fashion retail business, and this this individual has a lot of deep sustainability exper- expertise. And it's often very frustrating that any random person in the business can sort of put up their hand and say, "I'd like to work in sustainability too." And then there's a bit of this attitude of, oh well, okay, I guess fine. Bring them in. Yeah, bring them <laughs> in, which which I think is not always constructive. At the same time, you know, there are some great assets in the business as well. Uh, one of the examples I often talk about is, you know, people who work in who are coming from an IT background. And there's one person that I, I, I always have in mind when I say this, and she's been she was a leader in the in the IT team and she's moved into sustainability. And that means that she comes with a great mindset and logic on how to think in terms of the system design Mm -hmm. for data and data inputs and data outputs and is then able to rapidly ramp up on the sustainability context and layer that in. And I think that's a fantastic lateral move in. And there are a lot of those to be found in organizations. So I would kind of look at those as a few few general rules of thumb.
0: Okay. And so when we do have to look for manpower, what what are we looking for like are there any key skills that are like ding 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 i want that and any maybe on the flip side any watch outs
1: yeah i mean i think that we we've, we've talked a little bit about sort of skill bundles the watch outs i would i would say are i think that i think that we sometimes overvalue experience versus intrinsics mm-hmm. and i i actually think that there's a I've found that there's a balance where you want a bit of experience, but actually in a really innovative, fast-moving space, too much experience can be a liability. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true in sustainability. In sustainability, depending on what the role is, I would look for people who have who have some experience, but I would prioritize intrinsics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by intrinsics, I mean, you know again, it depends a little on the type of organization and the bundle that you're looking for, the problem bundle that you're looking to solve but you know it could be that you're looking for you you're, you really want to innovate on new products part of your sustainability challenge is how do you develop just a new business i was advising a, a this is when i when i was a consultant i was advising a big fossil fuel based company in the coal mining industry and they wanted to move towards sbti aligned targets And if you're in coal mining and you want to move towards an SPTI aligned target, that basically means you need to ramp down the old business and ramp up a new business. Mm -hmm. So you actually, it's not that you need operational efficiency people. There's only so much you could do with coal mining to make it environmentally efficient through operational efficiency. You need business builders. You need people who can say, I'm going to spin up a new mobility business, or I'm going to take us in the direction of chemicals, and ultimately we're going to slide out the coal piece altogether. And then that's a very different skill set. And you need people who can be innovative and entrepreneurial. And that often doesn't necessarily correlate to lots of experience. There are many other examples, I think, which one can cite. So that first piece of just valuing intrinsics, often a little more than expertise, I think is is Mm -hmm. important. The second thing I would look at is when you are valuing expertise or when you are looking at expertise and credentials, It's often more important to see if the person has solved a similar problem bundle in a different organization rather than whether they've solved other types of problems in a similar organization.
0: Let me say that a slightly different
1: way. Uh, If you're trying to manage a big sustainability shift, then a parallel shift might actually be managing digital. Managing a shift towards digital ways of working will require you to have had good stakeholder management, had good program management, managed good budgeting, figured out where to automate versus where to do something manually, uh, managed uh, to do something on time in terms of delivering a program, interfacing with all the different functions and sub-compartmentalizing work bundles into each function. All of this might actually be much more relevant for you than whether they've been working on sustainability because that bundle looks very similar to the bundle that you're trying to solve for. Um, By contrast, let's say that you're actually bringing someone in who has spent uh, many years in sustainability, but they've never actually had to manage that transition. You're bringing someone in from a very forward-leaning business that has always been sustainable at its core and you're now bringing them into a very traditional business that has never thought about sustainability, this person is going to feel like they're shouting into the void. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be frustrating for them, and it's going to be pointless for the organization. You need someone who has actually a track record of managing any type of change. Mm -hmm. It doesn't need to be sustainability change. They just have a track record of in that kind of organization, in your kind of organization, they have shifted the organization on some aspect, in some way, on time, at cost, and, and in a way that worked. Mm. So I would sort of think a little from that sort of lens.
0: I love it. it looks like m- matching, dating. Yeah, exactly.
1: exactly. Exactly. Um, a lot of life.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I guess like, where do, where do I find these people? Like, obviously that sounds amazing, but are there any kind of avenues that I should go down to look for them?
1: Yeah, I think so. There's a bit of, let's say, textbook advice and a bit of what we've learned I think that the slightly textbook advice, which still works for our business at Altruistic, but also I think works for our customers and would work, is we always look to specialist recruiters, for instance, and Mm -hmm. specialist feeder programs for the right type of talent. So, you know, for instance, we we like the on-purpose program uh, because the on-purpose program has a history of taking, you know, great people, high-performing people from Mm -hmm generalist industries, maybe it's investment banking, consulting, maybe it's something else, and then bringing them in and giving them kind of a rotational course in impact of different types. And so you get these people coming out of it who have a breadth of skills, which might be relevant for you, and, and those might be the functional skills that you need, but they've got this layer on top now, mm-hmm. which is of how, what it means to take a mission and translate it into an organization. Mm-hmm. And as part of their work in the program, a very common task that they're given is to help with B Corp processes, because a lot of the organizations that they're seconded to during the program are trying to get B Corp certified, and we were actually very similar. Mm-hmm. And so they come out, and this does, it doesn't matter if you're a small organization or a large organization, but they come out understanding what's important mm-hmm. and how do you think about streamlining all the different pieces of what's important in an organization. So that's one example. Uh, we like Terra.do as another similar sort of program with a cohorting-based approach, bringing in talent from many different feeders, uh, whether it's mainstream businesses or otherwise, and then kind of bringing them out as graduates of the program who are now mission-oriented. I think those are great programs. That's a little bit textbook advice, and and you can find specialist recruiters and sources for all the different types of talent you might need as well, whether it's data engineering, for instance, or otherwise. The more learned piece I think that I'm finding increasingly is that sustainability professionals are looking to their peers for advice and guidance. And one of the pieces here is uh, is that they're looking to understand where where is there a good sustainability team that feels empowered and that is really running ahead and actually they'd love to be part of that versus which one is frustrating. And so, for instance, we we host a lot of events. And I know that in our team, we have a really good idea of which organizations have a happy, well-functioning sustainability team and which ones don't, regardless of whether we work with them as customers or not. Similarly, I think that we see glimpses of this community. And obviously, we're like a, a software partner. And so in some ways, we're we're close, but we're never never embedded. But I think that you kind of see that actually... There's a lot of movement within these communities from people moving from one team to another because they recognize the commonalities Mm -hmm. and they're able to get to know people and know the problems that are being solved and see whether these problems are exciting. So I really think that uh, sustainability leaders should invest time in understanding which community they want to invest in being a part of. That's a little different to just showing up at events all the time because events... Can be very formulaic and can also be very formal and arms-length, yeah. whereas actually, you know, there, there are groups on WhatsApp, there are groups on Slack, uh, there are there are coffee meetups, yeah. there there are a lot of these sorts of little under the un, you know under the radar communities, and you know just to give an example, the one we hosted yesterday, we had very senior sustainability leaders where they're chief sustainability officers at Fortune 500 companies. We also had people in their early twenties just starting their career as a sustainability analyst in let's say a you know a three hundred million dollar revenue business. Mm. And you have this ability to bring these groups of people together and it's a great way to find talent as well, I think.
0: I think also as the like, you know, evolution of sustainability is going, like, you know, we've seen so much more like um, visibility around biodiversity and all these other problem sets that are kind of developing means that sustainability professionals are moving towards those problems that align most with their passion, their interests, their skill set, and there's a lot of that going on. Well,
1: oh, for sure, right? I mean, I think that yeah, the problem I have with ESG, just to come up, come back to that, is that it's a it's a basket of very different problems, and the interesting thing is we're now seeing even sustainability in some ways for some people seem like a basket of very different problems mm. and at our event yesterday we had people who cared very deeply about ecology actually and that's the most important thing to them is actually not climate change mm. and and from their perspective actually one of the best solutions is probably just fewer people yeah. because fewer people means more room for a stable ecology mm-hmm. And at the same time, a lot of people coming to the climate change problem are coming at it because they want a safe and healthy life for human beings. And they believe this is an existential risk to humanity, which actually for the pro-ecology gap doesn't sound that bad. Mm-hmm. And so I think that what you find is this unique situation, which I think has actually never happened to business before, which is where for a particular part of their business team, they need to think about mission and ideology not just as something to avoid in an interview conversation, but to try and actually lean into and understand, mm. because it will have an important impact on retention. Yeah. Uh, and that I think is is just strange for mm. business. I actually I, I, I think it's something that will take time for business to understand and appreciate.
0: I think on that strange note, we should probably <laughs> start wrapping up because we are definitely over the optimal podcast time.
1: <laughs> Good reminder.
0: Um, yeah. <laughs> But thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the podcast. Um, Seth runs LinkedIn Lives every month where he kind of fields any sustainability related questions. So please jump onto his LinkedIn and pop in any questions because the responses are usually pretty good. Um, And yeah, thanks for joining.
1: Thanks for having us. And thank you, Izzy. Uh, And let us know how you thought this episode was. And we'll continue in the same format if you liked it.
0: Perfect. Bye.